BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, in their best-selling 2022 book on the Trump presidency, The Divider, journalists Peter Baker and Susan Glasser wrote that the January 6th insurrection was the inexorable culmination of a sustained four-year war on the institutions and traditions of American democracy. Well, that was then. In a new afterword to the book, they write that Trump has now shunned any remaining voices of restraint within his own party. And with the former president leading the pack for the GOP nomination, Glasser and Baker join us to talk about what a second Trump term would look like. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. If Donald Trump did win the presidency again, what would a second term look like? For insight on that question, we turn this hour to journalists Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, whose best-selling in-depth look at Trump's one term in office called The Divider includes a new afterword where they describe Trump's second pursuit of the presidency as a quest for revenge, but this time with millions of followers and a hardened core of supporters. The Trump who announced his re-election bid in 2022, they write, was, quote, consumed by personal grievance and radicalized by failure. Peter Baker, Chief White House Correspondent for The New York Times, joins me now. Welcome to Forum, Peter. Hey, thanks for having us. Glad to have you. Susan Glasser, staff writer for The New Yorker, who writes a weekly column there. Really glad to have you too, Susan. Delighted to be with you. Thank you. So you both write vividly of the Trump you saw announcing his 2024 run as different from the Trump of 2016, though you say his speech could have been cut and pasted from any of his 2016 rallies. So Susan, what are the ways he is very different that we need to be paying attention to from the man six or seven years ago? Well, you know, the metaphor that sticks with me is a really chilling conversation I had uh, with a senior national security official who spent a lot of time with Donald Trump in the Oval Office. And this person said to me, you know, 
Trump, over the four years of his presidency, he's a lot like the velociraptor in uh, the first Jurassic Park movie. Uh, You know, the children, they run into the kitchen, they think they're safe, and then click, the door handle opens. The velociraptors learned over time to open the door. And Donald Trump, in his first four years in office, he learned on some level to open the door, not necessarily, you know, mastering the ins and outs of uh, policy details or new information, but he learned more how to get what he wants and more importantly, how not to have people surrounding him who would constrain him and stop him, which in many ways is the story of his four years in the first time, so far only time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's right. I mean, Peter, you both write about how he has shunned Restraint. There are a few around him who will restrain him. Can you just talk a little bit about some examples of how he has done that? Yeah, I think that's a good point because, you know, this book, The Divider, was meant to be a history of his first term, but now, of course, is looking like a possible prologue of what a second term would be like. And to understand what he wants to do in the second term, look at what he tried to do in the first term behind the scenes and wasn't able to because he had some people who did restrain him, the Jim Mattises and John Kelly's and 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 so forth of his first term. Those are not going to be there in a the second term. He's He has learned, as Susan said, how to turn the levers of power. And one way to do it is through personnel to make sure you don't have people around you that don't subscribe to your way of doing things. And he's no longer going to have these semi-establishment figures there. He's going to have the more radical figures who have been his most fierce partisans, and they will enable him to do the things he couldn't do in the first term. What did he want to do in the first term he couldn't? He he wanted to get rid of birthright citizenship for kids who were born in the United States uh, of immigrant parents. He wanted, to get, he wanted to get us out of NATO. He wanted us to pull troops out of South Korea. He wanted to do so many different things. We document in this book that he couldn't, that's what the agenda for a second term would be. And how is he laying the groundwork for doing this? In addition to not surrounding himself with voices of restraint within the executive branch, he also wants to be able to bring other branches, other departments as well under his purview, right, Susan? He's advertised this. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a a sort of a cadre of uh, former officials from the Trump administration who are actually hard at work and sort of planning what would this kind of pretty radical assault on uh, the institutions, the executive branch, what would it look like? Well, one thing is, one clue is an executive order he signed in the final days of his first term in office, which then Joe Biden quickly overturned, which would have enabled Uh, basically would have enabled the president unilaterally to fire a large number of um, uh, civil service employees who who currently are protected from being fired in order to replace them with political appointees. And so that would be a pretty significant hit on uh, uh, the executive branch itself, creating a cadre of much more loyalists. Another thing that he did throughout his term in office that I think you would see him turn to again and again and again would be this strategy of basically flouting the Constitution's requirement that the Senate uh, produce advice and consent, basically, of senior nominees. What Trump did, and more and more by the end of his term, he basically just ignored Uh, the need to get congressional confirmation. And he put his own preferred political radical uh, sort of appointees into these positions and just didn't worry about getting them confirmed by the Senate. And, you know, when his final Homeland Security secretary who was confirmed, uh, Kirsten Nielsen, when he finally fired her, he never 
And there were, I think, two years left in his term. He never even bothered to appoint uh, someone who would go through the Senate confirmation process, just left a series of actings. I think you'd see stuff like that really, again, assaulting the basic pillars. And he's already made it clear that's what he wants to do is to weaponize, in effect, the federal government to become more and more the personal instruments of the president's power. And there are a lot of people in the Republican Party, by the way, who subscribe to this theory of extreme power vested in the executive, they will go along with Donald Trump. And that is, I think, something that concerns a lot of people who are looking for the warning signs in terms of our democracy. Because there isn't really anything that could stop him, Susan? Well, uh, that's a good question. What are the constraints that exist in our system? What would be the constraints on Trump in a second term? Well, for one thing, I think the constraint, the ultimate constraint that the founders envisioned, of course, was impeachment and removal from office of a president. And it's my view that that's essentially been rendered meaningless by the two Trump impeachments and the fact that we have such a deeply divided Congress. It's it's almost impossible to conceive of a scenario where you would have more than 60 votes in the Senate to remove Donald Trump or, or any, frankly, president right now. And that means that impeachment as a constraint is gone on the president. And that was supposed to be the most important guardrail that there is on presidential wrongdoing. And then if you go even further, as Trump has done, and say that the executive should have even more powers, well, that means getting rid of the idea of an independent prosecutors and independent uh, decision making in the Justice Department. It means Donald Trump being able to say to his attorney general, well, you uh, go after my enemies and, and prosecute them. And he's basically said already that he plans to do that. Well, let me invite our listeners to join the conversation. What are your questions for Susan Glasser and Peter Baker about what a second Trump term could look like if Trump were to win the presidency. They're co-authors of The Divider, Trump in the White House 2017 to 2021, now out in paperback with a new foreword. You can join the conversation by emailing forum at kqbd.org, finding us on our social channels at KQBD Forum, or by calling 866-733-6786, You know, Peter, Susan's bringing up the Justice Department and... Uh, and I remember you reporting on um, and and talking about in in your book as well, just the way that the the president, when talking about uh, his prosecutors, posted a picture of him holding a baseball bat next to one of the prosecutors, later warning of potential death and destruction if he were charged with a crime. So certainly, he hasn't reined in his rhetoric either. No, no, he absolutely has it. And the rhetoric, of course, we have seen can have potentially uh, very violent consequences. Now, he may not have intended for the mob that went to the Capitol to use violence, but certainly the words that he used were taken by some of the people in the mob uh, as encouraging them. And I think that you see, you know, images like that and hear words that he uses, and it's not hard to imagine uh, how they could inflame the most, uh, you know, radical versions of his base. And, and I think that's something that you worry about. The fact the judge in the in the D.C. case, the prosecutors, they all have security now because they are worried about that. One of the things that Jack Smith, the special counsel, is asking this limited gag order 
four is to avoid, you know, intimidation of witnesses and the idea that uh, that uh, that he would, in fact, uh, you know, provoke some sort of an incident. So I think that, you know, it's still a very live and very real concern on the part of a lot of people. And Susan, if you want to add, I am curious your thoughts about what his rhetoric signals about his approach to a second term. <laughs> you know, there are two key words that Peter and I thought about when we were writing kind of this new afterward, right, an update after a year of publishing this book. We were not surprised. I'm sure you weren't surprised that Donald Trump announced that he was running again for the presidency. It was very clear uh, with his reluctant departure from Washington that he would run again. But there are two words that show how much more extreme he is this go around. Those words are termination and retribution. And those are, I think, the the core words that explain his 2024 campaign. He actually said that he would be willing to terminate the Constitution if that's what was necessary to reinstate himself in office. Now, obviously, that's not ab- actually happening. But you literally have a situation now where one of our two major parties has a front runner for president who basically has attacked frontally the Constitution, number one. Number two, his campaign, even more, I think, than 2016, when he had an agenda uh, that was resembled, at least in some way, uh, the the policy platforms of other candidates or other campaigns in the past. I mean, frankly, it was kind of a an echo of Patrick Buchanan's campaigns back in the 1990s. But now you have Donald Trump running, I think, on a platform that we've never seen before, which is basically forget everything about policy. It's literally a campaign about me and about using this office, this high office, to gain revenge on those who have prosecuted and, in his mind, persecuted him. Well, we have a listener on Discord who writes, this is going to be one of the most depressing forum shows. You should offer brownies after this because this topic is going to make me sad. Well, how do you think about us, right? We have to... <laughs> it's, it's, it's grim stuff. I, I do wonder actually how how you do uh, how you do think about this on a daily basis and regularly and and what does keep you going. We are coming up on a break, but I don't know if either of you want to just chime in quickly. <laughs> well, it can be exhausting, obviously, and it is something that we have all as a country now lived with for uh, eight years, and it uh, it's a nonstop, never ending controversy, conflict. Uh, Uh, and polarization, and it affects you as authors as well when you're trying to figure out how to make sense of it all. Yes, but it is so important to be able to make sense of it all. And that's what we're doing on Forum with regard to trying to look at what a potential second Donald Trump presidential term could look like, because it's not like there are not signs, signals, hints, and things that, that Trump is saying. So let's dissect all of those after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Susan Glasser writes in The New Yorker, as Washington begins another fall of self-made and yet painfully real crises, the political prologue to a 2024 campaign season unlike any other, as the ex-president turned criminal defendant Donald Trump threatens to return to the White House after challenging core tenets of our democracy, the word unprecedented is no longer sufficient. We've run out of synonyms, analogies, and time to escape. The Mess. Susan Glasser is one of my guests, co-author of The Divider, Trump in the White House 2017 to 2021, which you wrote with Peter Baker, chief White House correspondent for The New York Times. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786, You can also email them to forum at kqed.org or find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. What questions do you have about what a second Trump term could look like? How likely do you think a second Trump term is? How concerned do you think we should be about the prospect? Let me go to caller Jim in Lodi. Jim, you're on. Thank you. Uh, Because of the dire consequences of the second Trump term and because there's growing realization that President Biden is losing it, do you think that President Biden will decide to retire with a little dignity first or will he get primaried by a, a credible candidate? And if so, who might that first credible candidate be? And I'll Uh, listen off the air. Thanks, Jim. So, so Peter, will there be another candidate and is it, uh, the fact that everybody thinks that Biden is losing it? Well, look, Biden's age is obviously an issue. If you look at the polls, most voters, in fact, most Democrats think that he shouldn't run again, not that they don't necessarily like him. They approve of a lot of things they've done, the Democrats at least, uh, but they just think that it's too much. He's 80 years old now. He would be 86 at the end of a second term. And he, you know, he obviously is not uh, quite the same person as he was five or 10 years ago. Now, I've done a lot of reporting on his age. I think he still makes a lot of decisions in the same way he would have 10 years ago. He's still pretty sharp, but he presents in an older way. He shuffles and he speaks softly and he gets confused uh, at times uh, and forgets names and stuff. And that's very concerning, I think, to a lot of voters. But he's not going to step aside. He's made that very clear. Um, And there's not really likely to be any new challenger. Of course, RFK Jr. is is in there and Marianne Williamson. They're not likely to take him out. But the filing deadlines begin to start in the next few weeks. So if anybody were to try to challenge him, uh, we're at the point of no return. And you heard Gavin Newsom, your, your own governor, governor of California, say the other day, too late, get over it. Let's get on board with the Biden uh, train and make it work. Well, let me go to Rob in San Francisco. Rob, you also have a political question. What's on your mind? Thanks. Thank you. Um, Yeah, first a comment, which is that Trump is got to be the biggest existential threat, not just to our country, but, you know, to democracies around the world. I mean, it's his hypocrisy saying that the Biden administration has weaponized the Justice Department just to go after him when he is promising to do exactly the same thing if he's reelected. It's just it's the chutzpah is just it knows no bounds. But my question is, if Trump were to be uh, elected uh, in the primary, 
Wouldn't it be easier for Biden to beat him than, say, somebody else from the Republican Party that comes across as a little bit more reasonable, but somebody that might just carry Trump's water in the long run? In other words, kind of like a stealth Trump insert um, and just be like Trump, whereas Trump himself running against Biden, people would just they just couldn't go there and they would definitely vote for Biden over Trump if Trump were the, the nominee. Mm. Susan Glasser, what do you think? Do you think Biden has a better chance of beating Trump than a different Republican nominee? Yeah, I think that actually that is exactly what the the Biden campaign was was betting on, was the idea that uh, in the end it's not a referendum on Biden as as our presidential elections uh, traditionally are, but a choice uh, between him and in in effect uh, this very tainted political figure. There is certainly a, a, a view, I think there are numbers to support it, that Donald Trump is pretty close to unelectable in this country in terms of by a popular majority. Obviously, things look a little bit different in the Electoral College uh, because of where uh, the geography of, of votes are. But the bottom line is Donald Trump lost not one but two popular vote elections. It's hard to see after the events of uh, seeking to overturn the 2020 election and January 6th and four criminal indictments. It's hard to see that he's going to expand uh, the number of potential people who would support him among independents, Democrats, even among his own party. And so there has been the view, and I think it was the view uh, of the Biden White House, that in the end, uh, Trump is a very weak candidate. However, and I will put the asterisk here of yeah. however, the recent survey showing it essentially a dead heat between uh, Biden and uh, Trump within the margin of error. Now, national polls this far out, they don't mean that much, but they're certainly an indicator. Trump is running stronger, in fact, in those same national polls than he was at any point against Biden in the 2020 election. And so that undercuts the idea that uh, uh, he's unelectable in the country. And it should be, and I imagine it is, cause for great concern among Democrats. Yeah, the polling just isn't bearing that original uh, inclination out. Well, Rich on Discord writes, Putin has a very serious need for a friend in the White House to defund Ukraine. I think with the resources of Putin, Trump will benefit from some very powerful dirt, which could be dug up on an opponent, much like the leaked emails of the Democratic Party in 2016. Uh, Peter, you and Susan are both Russia experts. Your first book together was on Putin. Trump's admiration of Putin is well known, and uh, the Russian leader recently called the charges against Trump political persecution as well. I am really curious what you think um, a Trump win would mean for the war in Ukraine, Peter. Well, look, I think he's already signaled what it would mean. He said he would, quote, solve it in 24 hours. And he's been unwilling to say that Putin did anything wrong, right? He called Putin just before the war started a strategic genius. Uh, and as recently as his interview with Kristen Welker on Meet the Press this weekend said he welcomed, in effect, Putin's nice words of the last few weeks. He didn't reject them. He didn't dis disavow them. Any other politician in a normal era would say, American politicians, well, I don't want Putin to be praising me and, you know, forget that. He doesn't. Now, I think that what that means is that Putin is buying for time. There's zero reason for Putin to make any change in the war effort in terms of negotiations, certainly, for the next year and several months, because he wants yeah. to wait and see what happens in November of next year. Certainly, he believes that while Trump wasn't everything he wanted him to be, that a Trump administration would be better for him than a Biden administration. Absolutely no question about that. And Trump has signaled that he would, in effect, agree to give away Ukrainian territory to 
uh, Putin if he gets in office, and he has no interest in funding uh, the Ukrainian uh, war effort. Yeah, and it's so interesting how you're bringing up the prospect of a Trump, a potential Trump victory is is affecting foreign policy already with regard to the fact that Putin has no incentive, right, to negotiate or for peace and so on. And and then, you know, you can only take that further, right, Susan, with regard to China and what their incentives are really for a warming of relations with the U.S. and so on. Can you also just broaden out the picture a little bit in terms of what foreign policy under Trump might look like? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this question. I mean, it's been my view really since the very beginning of uh, when Trump initially got elected that in many ways, no matter how much you care about foreign policy, the greatest international crisis, the greatest threat to international stability is what's happening right here in Washington and in our American politics more broadly. Because, you know, we we remain a sort of the only real superpower, but a, a weakened and challenged one, largely weakened and challenged by events that are happening inside our own deeply divided and increasingly sclerotic country. So, you know, we are the foreign policy story. That being said, Trump, I think, in his first term suggested a, a really sharp break with uh, a lot of the policies of uh, the recent past, certainly in, in the U.S. And I think that he would not only do what Peter's talking about with Ukraine, which is to, to take Russia's side, to uh, uh, not only insist upon some kind of land for peace deal, but really to, to cut off funding for the Ukrainian uh, military resistance to undercut NATO. Donald Trump's predilection in foreign policy, I think, was one of the most notable aspects of his term in office. And it was something so very un-American in many ways for an American president, which was a consistent preference for autocrats and a consistent willingness to undermine and attack America's allies. And, you know, it's not just a question of not being a kind of a multilateralist, uh, but really just absolutely looking for opportunities to undermine institutions of uh, sort of alliance management, not only to go it alone, but praise for autocrats, not just Vladimir Putin, consistently praising Xi Jinping. He actually just did it again recently. I was really struck by that. Uh, praising uh, Turkey's leader, Erdogan, praising uh, Mohammed, uh, sorry, praising Egypt's leader, uh, al-Sisi. He called him his favorite dictator <laughs> at one meeting. Uh, and, you know, and on and on the list goes. And I think you would not only see that continue in a second Trump term where there'd be one, but at a moment when you have uh, this emerging kind of axis with Russia and China, it would really throw uh, the trajectory of, of global politics in, in kind of disarray and uncertainty. Yeah, God, we all remember that moment in Helsinki when he appeared to believe Putin over his own intelligence agencies. And that's all I could think of when you were first describing his view and relationship with Putin. And, and then there, there's also this issue of his business interests, right? His overseas business interests and, and how they played such a role in his term, um, in his presidential term in 2017 through 2021. What insights are you gaining about what and how that could play out, Peter, in a second term with the, pres with the former president? Yeah, of course, we hear Donald Trump and his allies complain about Hunter Biden taking money from foreign 
entities. Uh, but by comparison, it, you know, Hunter Biden is a piker. I mean, it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be scrutiny of whatever Hunter Biden did. Proper scrutiny is always, uh, you know, appropriate of a president and a president's family. But in this case, you know, Donald Trump was making money from foreign sources while he was in office. He was, uh, you know, his hotels were the, you know, rented out by the Saudis and others with lots of money. Guess why they would happen to stay at his hotels? Just happened to be a coincidence. Uh, you know, and, and, and Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, took $2 billion in investment from the Saudi, uh, the Saudis approved specifically by the crown prince with whom he had interacted with just weeks earlier uh, while in a position at the White House governing Saudi policy. So, you know, this has been an issue for the Trumps uh, all along, and, and he continues to have overseas uh, properties and interests, and 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 will if he had a second term, he made he made very clear he would never give up his business just because uh, he was in public office. He intended to continue to make money as as, as best he can, and he says that. Uh, and there's no reason to think anything would change. Well, this listener writes Kim Jong Un's recent meeting with Putin concerns me as Trump had no qualms with aligning himself with them, even praising Putin as a strong leader and keeping his love letter from Kim found in the documents discovery. I fear the three of them may collude and scheme to take over the world in nefarious ways. Their collective egos are a black hole, an existential threat. Uh, Susan, do you want to talk a little bit about Korea, Kim Jong-un, the impact on the Korean Peninsula, and, and so on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I forgot to list him in the the, the <laughs> list of the undistinguished list of tyrants uh, whom Donald Trump said admiring words about while he was president. Uh, there's no one more astonishing on on that list than Kim Jong Un, the young uh, uh, dictator of North Korea. Tr- Trump famously said he had a love affair with Kim, uh, and you know he touted the idea that he had made this sort of long lasting nuclear deal with Kim, of course, no such thing ever happened, uh, didn't didn't keep Trump from from nonetheless sort of claiming this as one of the signature moments. When Peter and I were working on The Divider, we went, we actually had two interviews with Trump at Mar-a-Lago. The second interview was in Trump's personal office in Mar-a-Lago, which is now famous, of course, as the site of the FBI raid that yielded all those classified documents. We didn't see the (laughs) classified documents lying around, but I was really struck that on the wall, Donald Trump had chosen a few photographs from his time in office, and they were basically all of him uh, and his family, no surprise. Uh, The two world leaders who were on his wall were Queen Elizabeth, uh, and Trump was the son of a, uh, uh, a woman who was born in Great Britain, Scottish, who was a huge royalist and, and fan of the queen. And then the other picture was of him and Kim Jong-un, which, again, it just sort of breathtaking, right? So unconceivable uh, in any other presidency that you would have this bizarre relationship with with a tyrant like Kim. And then Trump, uh, Trump and Putin, I was there. In Helsinki, actually, you mentioned Helsinki. What a what an incredible sort of a sucker punch uh, to the stomach kind of moment that was to have the president of the United States saying he would take Vladimir Putin's word over that of America's intelligence agencies. <laughs> Just the other day, again, this is kept up even now that Trump is running again in 2024. Just the other day, he said of Putin, well, I was the apple of his eye. He seems to look up to these dictators in a way that I still have a hard time wrapping my head around. I would just add, I, I was on Air Force One once with him covering a, uh, him at a G20 summit and we were coming home to Washington and he came back to the press cabin and was talking with us and he had just had dinner with Xi Jinping and he was just waxing 
enviously of Xi Jinping's ability to get things done. He didn't have to worry about a Congress or courts or, or you know, federal agencies or anything like that. If he wanted to put somebody on trial for fentanyl distribution, he said, he could do it the same day and have them executed by the next day. And wasn't that an amazing thing? So his you know, his affinity for these is the dictators is tied to their ability as he sees it to do what they want without constraint. We, talk, we started this conversation talking about constraints. He doesn't believe in constraints. Well, Noel writes on Discord, too large of a segment of Americans prefer to hand over their power to a strong man. Our democracy is sclerotic and no longer meets the needs of all Americans. We are too wedded to the founding fathers' vision of democracy. But parliamentary democracies that developed after the American Revolution, though not perfect or better, we have to reclaim our democracy from extremists or we will go down the path of Hungary, Israel, etc. Let me go to John in Berkeley. John, you wanted to weigh in. What's on your mind? Yes, I'm a historian and a philosopher. And it is fascism is the name of this. My question, first of all, thank you all for your incredible work. It is fascism. Just and so it's dictatorships, the alliance of dictatorships, the fascists. And uh, don't underestimate the extent to which America is fascist, Hmm. you know, all the rest of the country. And so uh, I suggest the book, The Nazi Seizure of Power. It's a playbook, and that's what he's doing. And uh, as an originalist, the punishment for treason is death. Firing squad if you're in the military, hanging otherwise. But we have to look out. Do not underestimate our enemies. Well, John, yeah, let me get Peter and Susan's response to this. Do you think that we, the nation, is embracing fascism to the degree that John is concerned about? (laughs) <laughs> well, look, uh, you know, it's interesting. The the use of the F word, if you will, uh, for a long time was very taboo in American politics. And actually, uh, you know, someone we've known a long time, a colleague here in Washington, Bob Kagan, first wrote about making this comparison and warning of this possibility. I remember it quite well in the spring of 2016 about Trump in the Washington Post. And at the time, it was seen as like, shocking. You know, wow. Like, you know, Bob Kagan has really sort of like pushed the envelope in terms of this analysis. And isn't this just once again, always sort of like invoking, you know, fascism or Hitler as a way of uh, essentially using political hyperbole in in our domestic political debates. But now I think there is there is a much uh, larger number of people, uh, as with your caller, who are willing to consider that possibility, especially because we've blown through so many of the guardrails that were presumed to be inviolable back in 2016 when Bob Kagan first wrote that, right? And, you know, for most importantly, the use of political violence uh, and the effort to stay in power, to to overturn this, to seek to overturn the 2020 election. That was a guardrail that once down, it's hard to see, you know, that Trump and his followers will go back. Well, we'll have more with Susan Glasser and Peter Baker after the break talking about what a second Trump term could look like. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Susan Glasser and Peter Baker, co-authors of The Divider, Trump in the White House 2017 to 2021, now out in paperback. It was an in-depth look at Trump's term, and it gives us insights into what a second term would look like. Plus, Susan and Peter have been reporting on that quite a bit. And you, our listeners, are invited to ask them your questions, um, ask them about what a second Trump term could mean. Share with us how likely you think a second Trump term is and how concerned you think we should be about it and about the the signs that the former president has been giving. You can email forum at kqed.org, call us at 866-733-6786, or post your thoughts on Facebook, Instagram, Discord, Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. And Scott writes, I've always said this as a joke, but can we honestly talk about seceding from the union? I guess California. I'm sure that the West Coast states would be open to it. I don't see how this would be any more radical than what a second Trump administration would look like. But, you know, Peter, you brought up the Kristen Welker interview on Meet the Press. You were there after the broadcast of that conversation to be able to give your insights on it as well. And there were some things that he said that suggested or I don't know that I would just love to break down with you for example that like he said it would be very unlikely that he would pardon himself if reelected I mean did you buy that could he do it <laughs> well I, you know on the one hand he could have tried to do it when he left Oz he didn't so there is that data point but does that mean he wouldn't do it uh, when he came back no of course we shouldn't look at it that way uh, you know nothing he says in terms of making uh, I will or I won't declaration should be you know, assumed to be 100% true. He said he would testify to Kristen Welka under oath about uh, the the documents case. And I think that, you know, Bart Mueller is still waiting for him to testify under oath as he promised to do in the Russia case. So I wouldn't hold my breath if I were Jack Smith about that. But yeah, you know, he, that that interview was fascinating in so many ways. It is a challenge for American journalism because he, everything he says comes out of his mouth and is, you know, much of it is just not true, distorted, requires some sort of context or fact checking or what have you. And, uh, you know, I started, I went through the transcript, was trying to count up all the different things that were just not correct, not true in there. And I stopped after a couple dozen because it just, it just, it's the whole interview. He kept saying thing after thing after thing that was not true. And she did a heroic job of trying to fact check him along the way. But he defies that because he's such a bulldozer. He just keeps bulldozing forward and insists on things that we all know or we should know anyway are not true. For instance, he said over and over again, he would not let up on this idea that the 2020 election was stolen, even though there's zero, zero, zero evidence of that. And it just uh, has become an article of faith. And I think that he believes that if he repeats it enough time, people will believe him. And polls show that so far that that's working for him. 
Another thing that really came up a lot in the post-interview analysis was the way that he harshly criticized his, well, his top rival, I guess, in the Republican presidential primary, though, by a margin. This was Ron DeSantis' six-week abortion ban. Um, Let's just hear a cut of that right now. I mean, DeSantis is willing to sign a five-week and six-week ban. Would you support that? You think that I think what he did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake. And this is, of course, the former president you know, whose Supreme Court appointments led to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So, so, you know, just curious what you make of that comment, Susan. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Actually, Trump from the beginning has been very concerned that uh, politically speaking, uh, the decision by the Supreme Court to throw uh, out Roe versus Wade was going to be bad for Republicans politically speaking. He, he, he's pretty amoral, you know, one way or the other when it comes to actual policy. He used to be, in fact, pro-choice. Then when it became advantageous to him, when he became uh, an aspiring Republican elected official, then he switched positions. He turned over his administration, arguably, to the greatest victory that the anti-abortion forces have ever had in this country, which was not only uh, the uh, anti-abortion majority on the Supreme Court, uh, which is three appointees cemented into place, but also transforming the federal judiciary largely uh, uh, at the behest of uh, anti-abortion activists. Uh, his own vice president, Mike Pence, with whom he's now broken, obviously one of the leading kind of national figures in that movement. So, you know, Trump is sort of like more than willing to have uh, benefited from the political support of this this part of the Republican Party. But as a matter of politics, I think he's seen very clearly from the beginning that it wasn't going to be good for Republicans electorally. And that obviously then happened uh, in many of the uh, elections that have taken place since then, including in uh, deep red states such as Kansas. You've seen uh, referendum uh, defeated uh, by uh, uh, pro-choice forces. And so, you know, what's also notable about that media, the press interview, though, is that Donald Trump won't say what he's for. <laughs> he said what he's against, which is what Ron DeSantis uh, uh, has done and other Republicans in other states are trying to do. But he won't say what he's for. Right. And, and that is such an important point. I want to bring caller William in really quick. William in Woodside, you're on. Hello. Yes, thank you. Um, I just want to say that the question of what's the difference between Trump now and Trump then is that there is no difference. You listen to what he says from the birther controversy, from the Central Park Five to the locker up. There is no difference. And he has no policy. He's just for himself as an authoritarian. And I think that you listen to him and you should believe it. It's scary. Thank well, you I very think, much. Thanks, William. Well, I think that is sort of central to my question to you, you know, both Peter and Susan. But but Peter, I can go to you on this first, just in terms of what do we believe as journalists, right? He he says things that, you know, sound insane and does, and then also says things that sound insane and he doesn't do as well. Or he does an interview like this on Meet the Press where, you know, there are moments in there where you wonder if he's, you know, at least suggesting some 
ability to be reasonable or to (laughs) read the tea leaves of what the electorate wants, say, with regard to abortion and so on. How do you navigate that as two people who cover him so? I I think the caller makes a good point. He is the same person as he was. That's absolutely true. The difference is what does make him different is his ability to accomplish it, right? His ability to make the the levers of power in Washington work for him. I think that's the point we were trying to make is that now having spent four years in the White House, if he gets back there, he will know how to do it better and more efficiently or effectively than he did last time toward the goals he is seeking. But you're right. He says things all the time that he never actually pursues. And you think, okay, well, he's just, you know, being provocative for the sake of being provocative. But then he says things that are provocative that he does pursue, right? A lot of people say, well, gosh, you know, if he loses the election, of course he'll he'll he'll, you know, concede and, and leave office peacefully. Who wouldn't do that, right? And of course he showed that he wouldn't. Uh, he told us starting in May of 2020 that he was going to challenge the election if he lost. He said from May of 2020 on, it was a rigged election. Nobody had cast a single vote by that point in the general election, but he was already saying that the election had been stolen if he lost. If he won, it was a perfectly fair and fine election, of course. But if he lost, he told us in advance he was what his strategy was. His strategy was to t- uh, tell us the election wasn't valid, and he has followed through on that. So in, in some ways, he obviously says things that never he doesn't mean or doesn't plan to pursue. And then in other ways, he's incredibly transparent and telling us exactly what he's planning to do, very overt in, in, in that regard. Yes. Well, um, I, I think... Let me go to caller Claire, who's been waiting. Claire in Walnut Creek, you're on. Thanks for waiting. Hey, um, thank you so much for this cogent and timely program. It could go on for weeks and we might not even scratch the surface, but that's what the book will do for me. Thank you. Um, I may have missed this, but speaking of assaulting basic pillars, um, how could you briefly discuss Project uh, 2025 by the Heritage Foundation, which is frightening to me, um, mm. and in and obviously in the public domain. And I think I heard um, Robin Young interviewed one of the Trump administra- former Trump administration guys heading this up, and it was astounding. She did a good job, but the gish galloping was astounding. Anyway, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, well, thanks, Claire. We had touched on this earlier with regard to Schedule F, but yes, this question really of um, how far it's going, the partners he has in place. Susan, do you want to say a little bit more for Claire? Well, that's right. She mentioned uh, the Heritage Foundation. There's also a group called America First Action, which has a number of other uh, former Trump administration officials. One of the people who's been organizing efforts to plan for a second Trump term is uh, Russell Vaught, who was the uh, budget director in in Trump's uh, in the latter part of uh, Trump's presidency. And th- what they're essentially doing is uh, putting together. Remember, Mitt Romney referred back to those binders of uh, uh, women nominees. They're putting together binders of essentially ideologically approved uh, nominees. And right now, the ideology seems to be people who are willing to be personally loyal to Donald Trump. Uh, I think this is a theme that comes through in in the divider is that the the sort of bizarre rise toward the end of uh, his tenure in 2020 of uh, his young former personal aide who returned to the White House as his personnel chief uh, really during the pandemic and, and from the pandemic through to the end of the presidency, this guy, Johnny McEntee, he'd been thrown out of the White House by John Kelly, the, the White House chief of staff for uh, allegedly a, a gambling 
problem and, and he called him a security risks. Well, when Kelly is then fired, Trump brings back this guy uh, in, in, in the spring of 2020, and he becomes one of the most important advisors at the end of Trump's tenure. And he's literally writing instructions for the Pentagon after the 2020 election. Trump, one of the first things he does is fire his defense secretary, Mark Esper, put in an acting guy. And the young personnel chief is writing diktats about how we should pull troops out of Afghanistan, we should pull troops out of Africa, we should uh, basically make an abrupt change to our national defense posture after this election that Trump lost. Well, McEntee and this idea of conducting loyalty tests at all the agencies that was a, a sort of a glimpse, I think, at the very end of the first term about what a second term would look like. Well, this listener, Scott, who wrote the early thing about how depressing the show will be, also write, writes, please give us anything, uh, some kind of hope. Tell us what we can do because we're in uncharted water. What do you say? I'm sure you get this question. <laughs> we get the question. We don't have the answer. <laughs> Peter's the designated optimist, though, so it's probably better for him. I I, I am optimistic about America. I, I like to try to remember our history, right? Our history is that we have had many periods of difficult times. We had a civil war. We had Jim Crow. We had Watergate and and the fights over civil rights and McCarthyism and so on. And we have come out of them, you know, and we have usually come out of them stronger. And and I think that this is a period of time where we're particularly polarized. And it's, it's not unique, though, uh, in the sense that we have had polarization before. It may be unique in the way it's playing out and the way it's facilitated. I think the, the advent of social media and the fragmentation of our traditional media has meant that it is easier for people to live in their own particular fact world. And that makes it harder and harder to bring the country back together. So it's hard to see how it happens. But I do believe we will come out of this period at some point uh, and we will look back on it and try to learn lessons from it. Well, let me remind listeners that this is a fundraising period for many public radio stations, including KQED. We are talking with Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Art writes, I'm worried. I'm a Mexican-American born and raised in California who grew up in poverty and migrated to pick fruit with my parents as a child. People who support Trump, like my siblings and their spouses, are willing to vote for him again. It's scary. My concern is how many people are willing to vote for him who you think would not do so. I remember my brother-in-law trying to explain the benefits of a Trump presidency during a Christmas party. I was stunned. What can I do to help my siblings and others like them see how Trump is not their best interest? What can Biden do to help my siblings and others like them see how he is a better choice? What can Biden do to help my siblings and others like them see how he is a better choice? What is Biden's game plan? You've written a little bit about this. I'll go back to you, Peter, on it. But just in terms of what he thinks is his biggest strength in terms of his selling point for voters? Well, look, you know, he is trying to be the anti-Trump, right? He doesn't go out there and do what Trump does um, in terms of the personal evisceration and the insult politics and the, you know, the intentional division. We did call our book The Divider for a reason because President Trump, I mean, every president to some extent has to in, in, play the politics of division because that's how you win elections. My policy is better than your policy. My candidate is better than your policy. But in the end, when they're president, there is usually this larger goal of bringing the country together, right? Bush said he wanted to be a uniter, not a divider. 
Obama talked about there not being a red America and a blue America, but a United States of America. You never heard that from Trump, whereas Biden does uh, preach that gospel. It not, may not be sinking in, but he does. And what he wants to do is show people he cares about policies that are important to them, doesn't engage in the in the politics of, of um, you know, personal destruction or what have you. But the problem for him is, as we talked about earlier, is a lot of people have lost faith in him. They just think that, uh, uh, that he's lost a step. And even if they like his policies, they're frustrated. The Biden White House assumption is that when push comes to shove in November of 2024, that yes, there'll be some voters who were disappointed with Biden or think he may be too old, but when it comes down to it, won't vote for Trump. And nothing has happened in the last two and a half years, I think, has won Trump over with voters who didn't vote for him in 2020. He's not getting new voters. He's doing really well in the Republican primary, but he's not winning over independents and Democrats and general election voters. So he's staying, he's stuck at the same ceiling that he's always had. And the question is, can Biden reproduce uh, the coalition that he had uh, almost three years ago? Well, there are things that Biden is specifically doing policy-wise, right, Susan Glasser, to be able to rein in, like, say, potentially this total attempt to take over, um, you know, and change employee positions um, to better fill them with loyalists. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, you can make an effort. And and I think, by the way, as we get into the 2024 election year, you may see more of a purposeful effort to sort of Trump-proof uh, different aspects of the federal government. You could imagine this happening not only with regard to uh, Trump's future ability to fire government employees. You could see it happening with uh, rulemaking in some of the agencies, for example, environmental regulations that were targeted uh, by the Trump administration. You could see an effort to do something there. Uh, Ukraine uh, and the war, I, I, that's something I of course, and following very closely. Uh, you may see uh, right now the U.S. is trying to pursue a strategy of negotiating a long-term memorandum of understanding with uh, Ukraine's military, kind of similar to what we have with Israel, with the idea being that that support would continue over the course of different multiple administrations, void by largely bipartisan support on Capitol Hill. But Bottom line is, it's very hard to uh, Trump-proof the country from its own president. And if Trump were to be reelected, that would be such a cataclysmic and, and big event. It would be very hard to really insulate uh, uh, the government in a policy sense from from everything yeah. that Trump and his his allies would do to implement their own agenda. We, we give a huge, strong hand to our executive in the system that we have right now, which is why this question of the politicization of the courts, the uh, uh, sort of Trumpification of the federal judiciary, that's why it's very significant. Uh, and I would just say, trying to be optimistic here, the, the one other thing is we don't know yet the outcome of these four criminal cases against Donald Trump. But I would say that one thing we didn't know a year ago when we published The Divider that we know now is that Trump will face trial, will face at least the possibility of accountability for his actions that include the head-on attack uh, on the integrity of the U.S. elections. And, you know, one of these four cases is directly about his unprecedented effort to overturn the 2020 election. And I think that the possibility of accountability still exists there, and that's very significant. Well, Amy writes, we are so fortunate for all the hardworking people who have worked tirelessly to bring this mafia boss to justice. 
bring it. The book is The Divider, Trump in the White House 2017 to 2021. And my guests are Susan Glasser and Peter Baker. Thank you both so much for giving us your time and insights. Really appreciate it. Love being with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, Dan Zoll, for producing today's segment. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.